Well, you're perhaps already there, but I want to invite you to turn in your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, as we continue to study the Gospel of Matthew, we've been working through this Gospel for some time uh, together as a congregation, and we have slowed down here in chapter 16 for a bit, for the Lord here, Jesus, speaks of several things that are striking and uh, have vast implications for us as a church and for as individual believers. And so we've taken our time in this section this morning. We're going to slow down, as it were, again a bit and look at verses 20 to 23 together. For the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading in chapter 16, verse 13, but we'll be looking together at verses 20 through 23. I'm going to read God's word. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Clearly, Peter was not understanding what Jesus was saying. And we are proud if we think that inherently we are different. Um, We too cannot understand God's word apart from his grace. So that's why let's just pause in humility and ask God to help us understand this passage. Oh God, we pray now as we meditate together and reflect upon the words of your Son, our Lord, We do pray that we would get it, that we would understand and grasp all that your Holy Spirit would have as the reason for which he included this exchange in Holy Scripture. Please grant us not only understanding, but obedience, repentance, in accordance with the truth, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 
Well, this is a jarring passage. I want to remind you, just as an aside, uh, that in your Bible you may have breaks and paragraphs. In my Bible I have little uh, headings for the paragraphs, and I remind you that the breaks in the chapters and paragraphs, and even those headings, they are not divinely inspired. And verses 20 through 23 do belong together, even though in some of our Bibles there's a space between verse 20 and 21. is a jarring passage, um, surely, for the disciples. The the exchange with Jesus, this incident, perhaps was the most jarring conversation, interaction with Jesus that Peter ever had. And the disciples, others there, the other 11, they're there, and I'm sure that this, this incident was fixed in their hearts and their minds for their whole lives. Why do I say jarring? Because we've gone from a scene in verses 13 through 19 where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we have the confession of Peter that Jesus is, in fact, the prophesied Messiah, the Christ, Son of the living God. We've reached, in a sense, the heights of the Gospel of Matthew at this point and the height of Jesus' discipleship of these 12 men They get it after witnessing him for his teaching and his miracles and his character for two and a half years. They have come to a conclusion, and that conclusion that they come to, that Peter comes to, is is by by the Heavenly Father revealing to them that this Jesus, this man, this young man from the town named Nazareth is in fact the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a high point. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful moment. And, and Jesus responds to Peter, blessed are you, Peter. You know, and, and sometimes when we heard the word blessed, we have this, you know, Roman Catholic or Greek, or I don't mean to be unkind to my Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox or Episcopalian, but we maybe think of a very, you know, a man in robes and... Uh, a very somber setting, and blessed, you know. And we have no idea what the blessed means, but, you know, it's just part of just the religious jargon. It's, it's what the guy up there has to do, whatever he does, what he does. It, it's, it's blessed is one of those words he uses just to fill in. No, Jesus is not using filler here. When he says, blessed are you, Simon, Jesus is responding with joy. Don't you picture Jesus' face smiling, his eyes brightening up at this moment, looking Peter in the eyes? Blessed are you, Simon. Barjona means son of Jonah. His father's name was apparently Jonah. Um, and he, he is full of joy. Peter has been blessed of Jesus' heavenly father with the understanding and the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is a joyous moment. And Peter and the disciples are honored as apostles, ultimately, and being given unique privileges in the church of Christ. God will use them to be the foundation, the building up of a church. And, and this church, Jesus announces, which even though all hell will assault and seek to break it, Jesus says, it will not overpower my church. Oh, this is, this is stirring, rousing language and joyous in verses 13 through 19. But then with verse 20, it, it, even verse 20 is a bit jarring. 
we have questions. Some of you have asked me, why, in verse 20, then does Jesus tell the disciples to not tell anybody he's the Christ? I mean, that just seems strange. I mean, basically, Jesus is saying to the disciples, in this particular verse, don't evangelize. Don't. I don't want you going out. I don't want you evangelizing, going door to door, telling people that I'm Christ. Jesus telling the disciples, don't tell anybody who I am. Is that jarring? I'm sure the disciples were shocked. We're shocked. And then even more shocking is we find Peter, who just moments ago was blessed by Jesus, being addressed by Jesus as if he is Satan, the devil himself. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Get behind me, Satan. In the span of a few verses, it's jarring for Peter, I'm sure, and the disciples. It's jarring for us. And we have questions about these things, and I trust this morning we will address them. But there's something that's even more jarring, disturbing about this passage. And I think we can miss it. If we understand what Jesus says in this passage, I think if we were really to grasp it, if the at least modern American evangelical church, I think, I think people would be absolutely dumbfounded. It, it would be like running full speed into a concrete pillar. And we read over it and we, we miss it. It's shocking, not so much because of what Jesus says, it's shocking because of our assumptions. Like Peter, Peter had assumptions, and it was shocking because his assumptions didn't line up with Jesus' assumptions. And there's something that Jesus says here that does not line up with our assumptions. And I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about the church these days. Perhaps you've picked up on it by now. It's in verse 23, where Jesus says to Peter, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's jarring. Because it's the exact opposite of what the church today holds and values. I want to work back with you for a few moments this morning to to understand the significance of what Jesus says to Peter. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man, that's why I've entitled this sermon this morning, God's Interests. I know you know this, but I just want to remind you that in the beginning of the Bible, you don't need to turn there, we learn in the book of Genesis that God created man and woman for his image, in his image, for God's glory, and for the good pleasure of His will. I'll say it again. And don't assume that we, we really grasp this. God in the beginning created man and woman in His image and likeness for His honor, His glory, 
and for the purposes of his interests, his will. But of course, man, tempted by Satan, who rejected God's will, man rejected the will of God and the interest of God for his own glory, for God's glory. Man, Adam rejected that and presumed to assert, Adam and Eve did, they presumed to assert their own interests as prior to and more important than their Creator and His interest. In other words, what they were interested in was determinative in deciding whether they should, what should be done. And in this case, in the early chapters of Genesis, to eat the fruit or not to eat the fruit. And it seemed good to them in their interest to eat the fruit. So they declined God's interests and asserted man's interests as most important. It's a tragic moment, of course, in human history, but praise God, the will of little man and woman does not derail the omnipotent, sovereign will of God. In fact, even before the foundation of the world, God, who knows all things, determines all things ultimately, determined that He would use sin and rebellion for the purposes of His own glory, display of it. And so before the foundation of the world, God determined the salvation plan ever before even Adam and Eve fell. We know this because in the New Testament, of course, we've learned that we who are believers were known before the foundation of the world, according to the eternal counsel and will of God. Lofty thought. Our will does not derail the will of God. And at the center of God's plan, His redemptive salvation plan of salvation for sinful men and women, for the display of His glory, at the center of that plan was the redemption of a people from bondage and penalty of sin. In other words, at the center of God's plan was not the climate, was not people dealing better with life in a sinful world and feeling better, at the heart of his plan was dealing with men and women's sin and their bondage to sin, redeeming a people for his own possession for the display of his glory. That's not all that God determined. Yes, he did determine in his will that his kingdom ultimately would rule on earth, that the kingdom of heaven would extend to all the corners of this globe that his enemies would be overthrown and be put to shame. But at the heart of his plan was not only the kingdom of God on earth, but at the heart of that kingdom, of that plan, was a cross. And his incarnate son hanging on that cross to bear the penalty for sinners. The cross was not an afterthought to God. It was the plan from 
the very beginning and before the beginning, for the display of God's glory. There are aspects of who God is, in His holiness, in His love, in His compassion, in His mercy, in His forbearance, His justice, that are displayed at the cross in a way that without the cross we would never know these aspects of God. We could never know the, the holiness of God and the dreadfulness of sin apart from the cross. We could never know the, the love of God that it goes to that extent that, that He would send His Son to suffer, bleed, and die for those whom He loves. The cross was at the center of the plan. We see this, for example, in a passage like Isaiah 53, where we, God says there in Isaiah 52, 53, Behold my servant. God is speaking there of ultimately the Messiah. This is some 800 years before the birth of Christ. And God announced through the prophet Isaiah that his plan was that there would be a servant, the Messiah, the, the, the king of Israel, who would be a suffering servant. He would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He would bear the griefs of his people, carry their sorrows. He would be pierced through for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquities, chastened for their well-being. By his scourging, they would be healed. By his death, his people would be justified. This was announced by the prophet Isaiah, by God through Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ came. And lest we forget, would you turn with me to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where the angel visits Joseph, who's obviously very concerned about... You know, Mary has been unfaithful, apparently. And the angel sends, God sends the angel to Joseph to inform him, no, no, this is not a, this is, Mary has not sinned. This is, this child is not of any man. This child that is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And the angel says to Joseph, she will, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which is the, the word Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves, God saves, you will name his name Jesus for, now this next line is very important, he will save his people from the Roman Empire. He will save his people from hunger and disease. and He will save his people from a bad week at work. He will save his people from their sins. And in saving his people from their sins, he will ultimately save them from the Roman Empire and from disease and hunger and all these other things. But he will save his people from their sins. This is right up front in the Gospel of Matthew. Make no mistake, this is why Jesus is on the scene. This is the will of God, His Father, for Him. This was, Peter will say, interestingly, years later, on the day of Pentecost, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, 
Peter will say that this plan was the predetermined plan of God. But when we come to Matthew 16, as we go a few years before the day of Pentecost, not a few years, about less than a year, Peter is, he doesn't see this. Jesus suffering many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, Jesus being killed, Jesus being raised up on the third day, this is not what Peter thinks is the plan. This is not in his interest or the other disciples or the people in Israel who have been waiting for the Messiah to come to get these lousy Romans out of here, to get Herod out of here, to get these corrupt, hypocritical Pharisees out of here. This isn't the plan. You're not going to die. You are going to lead us into military victory and we are going to march with you into Jerusalem, Jesus, and you're going to clear out the rascals and you are going to reign and bring in the kingdom. That's the plan, according to Peter. And in their defense, the Bible does say that Jesus, the Messiah, will come. He will conquer his enemies. He will save his people from their physical enemies. He is going one day to reign on the throne of David from Jerusalem. But Peter and the disciples missed a very, very important piece of the plan. And it's the heart and center of the plan. They did not grasp the sinfulness of their sin. and They did not grasp what God had determined must be done in order to save His people from their sins. Jesus was never mistaken about the plan. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, you don't need to turn there, quoting from the Psalms, speaking of the Messiah. The Messiah says to His heavenly Father, Behold, I have come, In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. We do not understand Jesus as we learn of Him in the Gospels. We do not understand Jesus Christ unless we grasp that His life was dominated by this one concern. And you can put it in the form of a question. Here's the concern that dominated Jesus' life. What is the will of my Father in heaven? Period. From before birth, conception, birth, boyhood, teen years, young adult, young man, around 30, this dominates Jesus' life. It is, it, is, it is the one concern that trumps all others. What is the interest of my Father in heaven? That's it. What is the interest of my Father in heaven? 
we have an example of this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verse 43, when Jesus says to the disciples after praying, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities. Now, that's interesting, that word must. I should. You know, I've been thinking, working on my journal, and, you know, I think I should. No, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities. Why? For I was sent for this purpose. That determines it. My Father sent me for this purpose. This is His interest. This is His plan. This is what I must do. No matter how inconvenient, no matter how difficult, no matter what's involved, those things are irrelevant. My Father in Heaven wants me to do this. This is what I'm going to do. The interest of His Heavenly Father, what His Father in Heaven willed, was the singular dominating force in Jesus' life. And that's why in Matthew 16, verse 23, Jesus' response to Peter is so, is so severe. It is severe, isn't it? I mean, this is his friend. You get a little insight into their relationship. Peter is, he, he pulls Jesus aside. I mean, they have, he, he is his master. Jesus is Peter's master. There is a relationship there, of obviously, of master and disciple, but they have enough of a relationship that Peter can say to Jesus, can, can, I, can I talk to you for a minute? Pulls him aside. He, he means well. But Peter says to Jesus, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This suffering and and many things at the hands of the scribes, the Pharisees, and 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 dying. This, this is not going to happen to you, not on my watch. And Jesus says, turned and said to Peter. He doesn't say, "You don't understand, Peter. You're a little mistaken." Can you think of a more severe retort or response? Get behind me, Satan. Looking into Peter's eyes. How do we understand that? Matthew Henry, an old commentator, I think is very helpful. He says, in explaining the severity of Jesus' words to Peter, quote, whoever takes us, whoever takes us as Christians, whoever takes us from that which is good and would make us fear to do much for God speaks Satan's language. End quote. Whoever in other words, would put us off, derail us from the interest and will of God. Whoever, no matter how kind, no matter how familiar, they could be our spouse, our child, our parent. If they put us off from the will, the determined plan and will of God as revealed in Scripture, 
They're speaking Satan's language. So here, when Peter, however innocently, and it's not totally innocently because he has the scriptures. There's plenty of language in the Old Testament and imagery in the sacrificial system of the need for an atonement for sins. And so the disciples are not without excuse. They do not see the need for a suffering Savior, and yet God had prophesied all along that that would be the plan, the suffering servant. But however innocently, Peter meant well when he, in essence, tries to put Jesus off of the plan of the will of God his Father in heaven, when he expresses his concern and basically asserts, Lord Jesus, you know, I've been talking to the other guys and we've seen what you can do. You know, this walking on water stuff, telling the wind to stop, raising people from the dead, healing people of every kind of disease and sickness, the way that you stand up to those lousy false teachers and you're not intimidated or nervous at all, the boys and I have been talking, and we think you're the Christ, and uh, we, think, we think we ought to go to Jerusalem and make this thing happen right now. Let's go. Just skip the whole suffering servant thing. We've seen what you can do. Let's go. And Jesus, rather than being allured by that, tempted by that, has absolute clarity, doesn't need to pause, doesn't need to reflect, because he knows what his Father has sent him to do. And so he looks at Peter for a moment as though he's the very devil himself, because only the devil would want to put Christ Jesus off of the plan by which he would save his people from their sins. Matthew Henry, one more sentence to explain the severity of Jesus. He says, Whatever would appear to be a temptation to sin must be resisted with abhorrence and not played with. So we see a little bit of how Jesus here, remember, he is truly God, but he is the Son of God incarnate. He's a true man, righteous man. But his way to deal with temptation is not to consider it. He deals with it severely. Get behind me, Satan. No tolerance. It is remarkable. The plan that God had for his son was to, that he would come and live a righteous life for us that we cannot live in of ourselves. None of us has, none of us will and to suffer, bleed, and die on the cross to die for our sins. That was the plan. That is the plan. That was the interest of God. And the interest of God trumps all other concerns, all other wishes, all other wills. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are setting your mind on not on God's interests, but man's. What application might there be for us? Oh, 
I think in humility. I, I really hope this sinks in. If there's one dominating characteristic of the church, and I'm talking about conservative evangelical churches, if there's one dominant characteristic of the church, at least in this corner of the world, in this generation, we are obsessed with man's interests to the degree that I'm not sure anybody even stops and pauses to ask what is God's interest. I mean, for Peter, at least, you know, there's some pretty significant things at play here. I mean, he's got the Roman Empire, and, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. I mean, it's pathetic, and this is not the main application of the text, but we have tens of thousands of evangelical Christians, probably millions, this morning in the United States or whatever, post-COVID, and I'm not talking about sick people. I'm, talk, I'm just talking about people who got in the habit of not going to church. And it's just an illustration. And they're not worshiping God today. They stayed home. Maybe they... You want to know why? Because it wasn't in their interest. And you have to see that the church has fed and basically said to people... Whatever your interest is, is dominant. And God is here to help you in your interests. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. How many times have I been asked, you know, and I understand when you're, when you're looking for a church, I, I completely understand. You want to know about the church. You want to know, you know, one of some of the things you have, small groups, you know, youth group, all legitimate, in, in context, legitimate. But there's just one question when you're considering a church. Do you understand that? It's only one question. Is this a church that I think that God is honored in and where his will and his interests are utmost? Period. If that's the case, I'm in because that's who, that's why I'm here. I don't, I don't know if, if we can really, we are so accustomed to men and, women's, men and women's interests, our interests being paramount, that we have lost sight of the fact that no, God's interests are paramount. Not certainly just in services and so forth, but, but we have flipped, we've flipped the gospel, we've flipped the reality, and we have created a God who is more concerned with our interests than with his own. Which is, of course, Romans 1, that we denied our true God and we made God in our own image. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning as an evangelicalism that... One, sorry, I need to pause. and just One of the other observations is you notice in the church today, you notice, and I'm hearing this from friends who are in some of these churches... You're hearing less and less about the cross. You don't hear much about sin. You don't hear much about hell or judgment or the need to be reconciled to God. We're not hearing much about that. We're not hearing calls to consider how we might honor God with our worship and assembly. And, and we, are, we are just pandering to the interest of men. No cross, 
no holiness, no inconvenience. I mean, that's maybe the greatest thing. We, we don't want to be any inconvenience here. No cost. Because we set our minds on man's interests and not God's. If we are Christians, followers of Christ, if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, there is, like Jesus, one question that dominates our life and one question that ought to dominate the life of a church. And only one question. What is pleasing to our Father in heaven as revealed in Scripture? Period. That's it. Not what do people want, not what might fill the seats, what might ease the tension with the culture and the day we live in, what is pleasing to our Father in heaven? What is his interest? What is his interest? His glory, his praise, that we reflect who he is and, and his Son. Holiness, love, adoration, service to our God. These are the things that interest him. He loves men and women, lost and dead in their sins, but we misunderstand the gospel if we hear that through a therapeutic audio and, and hear it as God is as obsessed with self, us, as we are. We are so mistaken if that we think that way. He loves us, but he loves us for the purpose of his interests, which is not for him sin. For me or you, that would be gross arrogance. If I live my life for myself and my own interests, I am thinking way more of myself than I am. But for God, it is good and it is pure and it is holy. What is the interest of God? And the interest of God is that his son, Jesus, would die on the cross for our sins, that we would come to terms with our rebellion and turn in sin, that we would confess our self-interest and turn from it, repent and believe in his son who lived and died and suffered for us so that we would be redeemed from our life of rebellion and sin and redeemed to a life to where we were restored to where God made us for in the first place, where we lived to please him. And I'll close with just this, because people, and this is our, our generation, we think, well, that is so impractical. You mean I'm going to live for God and for his interests, and that's going to determine what I do with my money. That's going to determine how I spend my time. That's going to determine my days. And I mean, boy, that's, that's very impractical. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Until you realize you were made to please him created to please him and that as we live for God we fulfill and find joy in the very reason we were created what we were created for there's an old hymn there is joy in serving Jesus and it's real you don't have to fake it when your life is dominated by this concern what is pleasing to God it simplifies a lot of things and you can go to bed at night knowing, however imperfectly, I have fulfilled 
the purpose for which God created me in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask your forgiveness for how consumed we are with our interests and the interests of men. And we pray that you would put within us a heart for you, the things of God. Even now as we come in a moment to the Lord's Supper, that we would turn from ourselves and embrace your plan of dealing with our sin, of exalting your Son, our Savior, so that we might live for you. In his name we pray, amen.